You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Nehemiah 2, beginning in verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Heronite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain of gate and to the king's pole, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem." that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Heronite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we are his servants. We, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. So sometimes the hardest thing that we're going to face isn't the challenging task ahead itself, but the opposition that we face before even tackling the work. Maybe it's internal. Your own inner critic, you know the voice saying, you're no good, you're not up for the task, you're gonna fail, there's no use, you suck, you have no business engaging in something like this. There's also external, right? There's always going to be someone, some voice opposed to restorative work. Why? Maybe because some people have no desire to see things change. Some people are afraid of change. There are people that are even set up to benefit from things remaining broken. Some people can't stand to see other people succeed because it just highlights their own failure and their own insecurities. And we all know the adage, like, misery loves company. The the reasons may vary, but there will always be resistance to rebuilding. If you engage in anything that brings meaningful change, In the name of Jesus Christ, you will, without fail, mark my word, face opposition. It's going to come. 
And like we're going to see throughout the book of Nehemiah, it's still early in the book, it's ongoing opposition. This is not a one-time deal here. Nehemiah 2 is that dun-dun-dun moment in the narrative where we, the reader, are introduced to the ongoing antagonist, the person or the persons responsible for conflict. We know this, every story uh, has an antagonist. It's the bad guy. It's the villain. It's the person or the group that is creating conflict, always working to frustrate or destroy the progress of the plot line and come against its main character. And in the biblical count of Nehemiah, that is none other than Sanballat and Tobiah, among others, but primarily these two figures we will see quite a bit this spring, Sanballat and Tobiah. So here's where we're going to begin. We're going to begin with the theme of indignation. Look with me again in verses 9 through 10. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now, the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalot the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them, what? Greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So Sambalot was the governor of an area called Samaria to the north. Tobiah was some sort of government official, maybe even a governor himself in the area to the east of Jerusalem. And as Nehemiah rides into Jerusalem, he rides in in style. He has the royal entourage, and it gets the attention. In fact, to come over the, the sort of the hump of the Fertile Crescent, he's got to pass through both of their territories. And as he comes through, he comes through in style, and it gets their attention, and they are immediately threatened. They are indignant. They are angry. They are not just displeased, greatly displeased. And we don't have to guess why they're indignant. We're told here that they can't stand the idea that there is someone coming to seek the welfare of Jerusalem. That's what makes them upset. Now, there's a plain reading of this passage that is very obvious for us. They're upset. Nehemiah is there to rebuild Jerusalem, God's holy city. But there is also going to be something that's easily missed on all of us English speakers. And it, there's actually a play on words happening here in the original language. Um, I didn't pick this up. Someone had to tell me this, so I'm not, I'm not a Hebrew expert here. But apparently, Tobiah's name means Yahweh is good. Tobiah, Yahweh is good. And yet, ironically, he is greatly upset to see God's goodness being displayed. The ironic part is the word welfare here is Toba. Tobiah, Toba. His name, God is good. And yet he's angry about someone bringing God's goodness to this place. This is intended to be ironic. Oh, that's funny. Didn't you laugh when you read it, right? You're like, oh. <laughs> but... It's not just ironic, this is, to me at least, a terrifying idea. And here it is. That someone who bears the name of God can be living in ongoing opposition to the work of God and maybe not even realize it. Just because you bear the name doesn't mean you support the cause. Let's make it more personal. Just because you bear the name of Christian doesn't mean that you are for Christ and his mission. 
Jesus presses this issue to the religious crowds when he says in Matthew 12, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So neutrality doesn't seem to, like there's no place for neutrality. You're you're for me or you're against me. So the first hint that we get here of antagonism in the story of Nehemiah, which is a contentious story, by the way, the first hint that we get is indignation. And if, and it is, if first impressions matter, especially in a narrative like this, then in the story of Nehemiah, the way that we, the readers, are introduced to ongoing enmity, the villains in the story, is by describing their resentment and their bitterness. This is the defining mark of the enemy. So here's, again, personal question. How can we, how can you, how can I determine whether or not we are opposing God's restoring work? All we have to do is we look for the same characteristic. We look for the same thing in our lives. Resentment. William Garnall, a writer from hundreds of years ago, said this. If men hear a noise at night, they cry, ah, the devil, the devil, and they run for their life, but they carry the devil around in their very hearts all day. For if you have a proud spirit, or if you have resentment, you are under his power. He is setting you in a precarious place. My friends, why don't you run from your pride Crying, the devil, the devil. Why don't you run from your resentments and your grudges yelling, the devil, the devil. So whether we intend to or not, indignation or being a disgruntled person, just a constantly angry and resentful and disgruntled person is how we align ourselves with the cause of the enemy and maybe not even know it. And so to ensure that we are a part of the building, because I imagine everyone here wants to be a part of the building, to ensure that we are a part of the building, building and not the tearing down among God's people, then we have to make sure that we refuse to give in to bitterness. I know where this leads. I know the destruction that this leads to. We've got to repent of our jealousy we got to repent of being easily bothered. We have to refuse to harbor resentment towards others. I just pulled in uh, the, the building here earlier today, and I saw a billboard out here on El Dorado, and it's like a little kid, like, in a, like as a dragon, and it says, if you're grumpy or upset, pretend you're a dragon. Let it out. Roar, and like fire coming out of this child's mouth. That's someone's job to make that sign. Like, that's your full-time job. And think about the communication. Like, if you're angry, let it out. No. Repent. Repent. (laughs) And the ironic thing is that you can be actually aligning yourself with the dragon, which Revelation would tell us is Satan. In the New Testament... We're told in Titus chapter 3, be ready for every good work. And here's how. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. 
and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish. Remember your life. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we used to be. Remember? I remember. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. This is sounding very familiar with our confession this morning. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The more that we stare at the cross, the more that we focus on this loving kindness and goodness that appeared to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the less possible it will be for us to hang on to our resentment. How can you nurse a grudge in the face of such a kind, forgiving Savior? Have you forgotten? Consider all that we've been forgiven of. Consider how much God deserved to hold a grudge against you. And yet sent his son Jesus to die for your sins, to rise for your new life, the Holy Spirit to be ongoing communion, and to give you the hope and the promise of his return to renew all things. Refuse to cling from what the gospel explicitly states you've been freed from. Let it go. Let it go. Secondly, that would have been a good place to end a sermon, huh? It's not that easy, guys. Not that easy. Secondly, Inspection. For all of Nehemiah's drive and clarity, this is a man of holy ambition. He is a go-getter. He is a great leader. But notice, he does not rush into action. He is not impulsive. He takes a few days to rest and then to assess the situation, and he begins his work with inspection. Look with me again in verses 11 through 16. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days, then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down in its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then... I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, and there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley, inspected the wall, and I turned back, and I entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of who were to do the work. So, he assesses the situation, the good, the bad, the ugly, the desirable places, the undesirable places, the places where they get the water, the places where they funnel the sewage, um, the king's pool, the garbage heap, the gardens, the graveyards. He, he conducts this thorough inspection of it all. Now, one of the most 
powerful spiritual exercises that I have ever participated in was years ago, I spent months and months visiting every single neighborhood in Stockton. And I was, it was inspired by this passage. And I, I would go each week to one neighborhood, get out of my vehicle, and just walk and pray. I was not there to evangelize. I was not there to strategize. I wasn't there to talk to anyone. I was there to take it in and to pray. And what I did was I paid attention to the things that I would otherwise sort of overlook when I'm just speeding by on the road or on the freeway or literally neighborhoods I would never even go to or see otherwise. And I would ask these sorts of questions. What, what's the presence of Christianity look like here? Are there Christian churches? What other religions are represented? What's the condition of the infrastructure? Is this an underserved place in our city? Things to look for, banks and grocery stores. What are the obvious signs of brokenness and struggle? What, where's the hidden beauty? What, what redemptive qualities exist in this neighborhood? Where are evidences of grace and joy? What are the spiritual strongholds that I may be sensing in prayer? And how is God stirring me to pray for this neighborhood? And what may God want to do here in the future? And I had this little city map We've got this slide, it's hard to see, but this is just the different neighborhoods of Stockton. And each week I would just check off one, I would spend time there, sometimes I only had like 15 minutes, other times I'd have extended amounts of time. And I'm gonna be honest with you right now, I felt like it was a big waste of time at first. In fact, I was embarrassed, I don't think this is what's going on with Nehemiah, but for me, I was embarrassed to tell anyone. Because I, I knew what I was going to hear. Like, get a real job, man. Like, what do you do? Like, that's what pastors do. Play golf and, like, travel to different places in the neighborhood. And, and the more that I was exposed to the city, the more I realized this is necessary work. We have to assess and we have to reassess. This includes the mission field that we're a part of. This includes our city. This includes the neighborhoods that we reside in. This also includes the workplace that we're in. That is our mission field. It includes our, our families and our church and even our own lives and rhythms. What are the things that need to be strengthened and rebuilt? What are those areas that God is calling me to invest myself in order to see renewal? According to LifeWay Research, the number of individuals and families who are actively participating in the life and the mission of the church is declining year after year, even pre-pandemic. So that number is in decline. That's a weak point. That's a place that we have to identify within the church at large, and that's an area that needs strengthening. That's an area that needs rebuilding. That's a place, I believe, that God is calling his people to rise up. According to uh, Barna Research, they conducted a study that... Uh, focused on the state of unity and relationships among people, and what they found was that 36% of adults feel threatened when someone simply disagrees with them. Threatened when someone disagrees with them. So let me put it this way. You have a one in three chance of being seen as a threat and a threatening person if you'd simply disagree with someone. What does that mean? It means the state of relationships are volatile. That's an area that needs healing. That's an area that we need to pursue healing in. Or consider the fact that according to research conducted over the last few years, Stockton, no surprise, continues to be one of the most dangerous cities in America. We can't pretend that that's not real. 
We can't go around saying, no, 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 Stockton's magnificent. There's no problems. Don't look there. Look at the miracle mile. Look at the fun things happening. No, it's broken. It's in shambles. We've got to open our eyes to where we are and the unique challenges our community faces so that we can effectively pray, so that we can be pleading with God, so that we're not growing resentful towards our city, so that we can join Jesus in his plan to renew places and people. But we also need to make this personal. Look at me again in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we're in. It's one thing to identify the problems out there. We're good at that. Oh, there's problems here. Oh, problems in the church. Problems over here. Problems over here. It's another thing to identify with the problems. We. Look at the trouble that we're in. We need to humbly acknowledge the things in our own lives. In reality, we need to humbly acknowledge the things in our own church that may be broken, that aren't working, that are hindering ourselves, or maybe even hindering others from pursuing God, maybe that are dishonoring to God. Maybe it's a sin pattern. Maybe it's a work pattern, how we relate to our work. Maybe it's compromise in relationships. Maybe it's how we spend our money. Maybe it's how we spend our time. Maybe it's even how we steward our own health and our own body. Maybe the way that we treat it or neglect it. It may vary. But what I want to do is I want to invite you to take a fearless inventory of your own life. Do what Nehemiah did. In quiet, in secret, look at it all. The good, the bad, the ugly, your family, your relationships, your community, our church. Be honest about it and begin to pray about it so that we can effectively join Jesus in his restoring work among us. Inspection. The third theme that we see here is invitation. It doesn't just end with the bad news, but there is a profound invitation. Look with me again in verses 17 through 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. I don't have to point it out to you. How, Jesus, um, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, and listen to these words. And the people said, let us rise up and build. We are in. By him. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So after telling them about the devastation that again was apparent, I don't need to point this out to you, essentially he's saying. Nehemiah then inspires his people to rise up and join the rebuilding, to refuse to settle for suffering ongoing shame. You don't want to keep living like this, guys. And to do something about that. There's a quote that I've referenced many times in the past, and spoiler alert, I will continue to. It comes from a French poet named Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, and it goes like this. If you wanna build a ship, don't drum up people together to collect wood, and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. What he's saying is, the way to capture people's hearts 
The way to get buy-in like this, to instill courage and to unify people and strengthen resolve and, and cause people to rise to the challenge is not by staring at the challenge itself. It's not through obsession over the details. Oh my gosh, how are we going to do this? What do we have to work with here? It's by being captivated by immensity. It's by being captivate, captivated by a vision of what could be. And the way that we as Christians are captivated by immensity is by beholding God. By seeing the infinite worth and ability of our God. That's what Nehemiah does here. And I told them of the hand of my God that was upon me for good. Yeah, 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 the task is big. Yeah, 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 it's a mess. Look at the Lord who is with us. Yes, we have to be familiar with the trouble. But we've got to fixate on the truth. The trouble is real. Ruins, shame, opposition. It's not like bury your head in the sand and pretend, pretend it's like there, not there. No, acknowledge the trouble. But the truth, the more vital truth is that the hand of the one who created the heavens and the earth is upon us for good. He is with us to help us. He is with us to provide for us. He is with us to strengthen us. Can you envision what he desires to build among us? When was the last time you began to dream of what God may desire to do through his church in our time? Like the prophet said, we've heard the rumors of you. Do it again. Do it again. He's reminding God's people that we are not limited to our situation. We are not limited to our resources. We are not limited to our finances or our wisdom or our experience or our strength or our courage or our power or our suffering or our shame or our sin. We are bound by faith to the immensity of God and his character. That's the truest thing about us. That's what we're working with. His hand is upon us. God is working among his people. And it doesn't rest in our hands. Take a deep breath. The future of reality is not in yours or mine or anyone else's hands. It's in God's hands. Breathe deep. Amen. And this is the way that we strengthen our hands for the work when we place them in God's hands. I remember when my kids were real small. They always wanted to do things that they were incapable of doing. I want to do that. I want to push that. I want to throw that. I want to cast. It was always, I want to do that. And so what do you do as a parent? You put their little hands on it, and then you put your hands over the top, and there they are like, look at me, I'm doing it. And you're like, no, you're not, but here we are. What the, that's what God among his people is doing. He said, put your hands to the work. I'm inviting you into this. You're not an innocent bystander. I'm inviting you to participate. But guess what? Here comes the fatherly hands to guide you, to provide for you, to push you forward. You're not alone. You're not alone. So that means that the vision for our lives and the vision for our church needs to be God-centered and a God-sized vision. Nothing ever less. We submit both to his plans, he's directing this thing, but also to his providence, 
knowing that where he calls us, guess what? He'll also provide for us. He's never going to just like launch us into oblivion and say, good luck, figure it out. He's with us. He's with us. And that's why we can join with the Apostle Paul in saying from Ephesians chapter 3, now to him, not now to we, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever can I get an amen. Now to him. You see, for us today, the vision is so much bigger than a wall. I addressed this in the first week. Uh, difficult topic to talk about as Americans, the wall and all that. But this is so much more than a wall. For us today, this is about the global mission of Jesus. Saving among the nations. This is about God expanding his everlasting kingdom to the furthest reaches of the world. For us today, this is about the building of Christ's church. The New Testament describes the church as a structure that's being joined together that grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And that in Jesus, we are also being built together into the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And then in Ephesians, it goes on to say that when each member, not just a select few, but when each and every member is working properly together, then it is built up in love. That we can and we must participate in what God is doing throughout the ages. This is what we're doing when we're serving the church. This is what we're doing when we're making disciples. This is what we're doing when we're teaching our children about the love and kindness of Jesus Christ. This is what we are doing. We are joining God's eternal work of building his people. I'm a part of that. Did you know that? And you can be too. And so the confidence that we have in the face of such an enormous task, let's not minimize this. This is crazy. This is big. This is beyond us. The confidence that we can have is the same confidence that Nehemiah had back then, that the hand of God is with his people. I don't know what the future of reality church is going to look like. I don't know what we're going to look like or where we'll be or even if we're going to be here, if I'm going to be honest, in 15 years. I don't know. I can't make any of those promises. Don't be looking for confidence in that. But I do know this. And I'm telling you right now in all sincerity, I am betting my entire future. I'm going all in. I'm putting all my chips on Jesus' promise that he's made regarding his global church, his body, that's found in Matthew chapter 16. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm not a smart guy. <laughs> I don't know how to gamble. I don't mess with the stock market. <laughs> but I'm going all in on that. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I got a question for you. If that doesn't convince you to join and build, what will? What more would you be waiting for? What promise... What hope, what vision do you require beyond that promise right there? Let's look finally at intimidation. This, this passage is bookended, so we gotta kind of end on a downer note here, but it's God's word. God's favor and his goodness upon his people, we need to hear this, 
His hand upon us does not mean that we live free from opposition along the way. In fact, we read in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. The more opportunities that open before us, the more opposition that we will face. That's something we can just count on. And we see this to be true in Nehemiah. As soon as word gets out that people are up for the task, conflict is reintroduced into the story. And this time, it appears with sharper teeth. And we see the methods of their intimidation here. But it says in verse 19, but when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and now another, Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that they're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? What is this thing that you're doing? So what are the tactics of intimidation that we see here? They're jeering at them. They're mocking them. They're despised. They're scornful in their language. They try to confuse them. What is this thing that you're doing here? Now, what they're doing here, probably Tobiah, he's twisting biblical language in order to confuse them into thinking that they're doing the wrong thing. What is this thing that you've done? Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve in the garden, they sin, God appears, and what's the question he asks? What is this thing that you've done? They're, they're trying to use twist scripture to confuse them into thinking, no, you think you're working for God, you're actually doing a wrong thing. What? And then on top of this, they're like, and you're rebelling against the king, by the way. You, you and your people, this little thing you got going on here, it's a threat to society. Again, here's the way that someone aligns themselves with the work of the enemy who is called elsewhere in scriptures the accuser of the brethren, mocking, scornfulness, confusion, accusation, and these have no place in God's work. In fact, Nehemiah says to the antagonist in verse 20, you have no portion or right or claim, just in case you didn't get the memo, in Jerusalem. In other words, Nehemiah tells them that they have sealed their fate when it comes to involvement in God's kingdom. You don't get to bash the work of God's people continually and then think that at some future date you're going to like stroll in and reap the benefits. No, you have forfeited your portion here. You have no place among us. I'm not going to make any apologies for this. The Bible is like freaking no nonsense when it comes to this sort of thing. It's not going to be tolerated. And I've got to be honest with you, it's not going to be tolerated here. This is not a safe place to bring scorn. But notice Nehemiah's response to intimidation. There's no mention about his feelings getting hurt, like, oh, how dare you? some sort of demonst- you know, demonstrative response. He's not trying to convince him, them of, of him being right. He's not saying, you're wrong and we're right. He's, he, he doesn't waste his time like that. Instead, he says simply, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. Guess what? We're gonna keep working. And it's the same way that Jesus battled with the enemy, the devil, in the wilderness, in the Gospels. When the enemy tries to bring lies, when the enemy tries to 
bring confusion. What does Jesus do? He turns to God's word. It is written, it is written, it is written. So here's the question for us. How do we stand up to intimidation? How do we overcome when we are mocked, when we are despised, when we are misrepresented, when we are accused? It's not determination. It's not trying to prove ourselves right. It's not cleverness. It's not creativity. It's not brute strength. It's not a giant church budget. It's not numbers. It's truth. It's truth. The truth of who God is. The truth of who we are now through faith in Jesus, our identity in him. The truth of who God is in our lives. I love Nehemiah's response here. He's essentially saying, you can try all you want to intimidate us, and I'm sure you'll keep trying. But God is in heaven. We are his people, and he is with us, and there's nothing you can do to stop him. Now, if you'd excuse me, I've got work to do. And in the face of intimidation and opposition, we say the same thing. God is in heaven, We're as people, he is with us. If you'd excuse me, we've got work to do. We've got work to do. Amen? Father, we thank you.